Well, hello there, folks. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever part of the world you are in. It is just past midday here on the not-so-sunny Gold Coast. I have my coffee, no bad days. We're making the most of it. It's flooding. This is probably the worst flooding I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I'm okay, I'm up high in an apartment building, but some of my friends aren't doing so well. Uh, so stay safe, everybody. Um, we are up to episode number 51 of Chit Chats with GitCats, and I have a very special guest here, and uh, Ding Dong, who's at my door, no other than Mr. Larry Mitchell. Hey, Larry. Hey. Now, as I mentioned, it's... Nice crowd. Yeah, yeah. Runs a crowd. They're all on that side of the camera, apparently. Um, as I mentioned, we're flooding here, but you're in... Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. How's, how yeah. is it there, mate? It... Uh, not flooding. Flooding was Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, it wasn't flooding, but we had like serious storms where we were, where I'm at right now on Tuesday and Wednesday. Not anywhere near like what you guys are going through in, uh, in Australia. Yeah. As we were saying but, uh, before uh, we started, you were, you were asked to play on the, um, the fire benefit. And now we've gone mm -hmm. through a pandemic and now we've got the floods. So, um, yeah, it's just it's well, I literally started last year on this record for uh, fire relief because um, of all the fires you guys had there, and now I it's just the opposite. So, well, if yeah. anything, it's given me a lot of time to sit at home and play guitar, which isn't such a bad thing. And, and did you have this show back before the pandemic? I'd done a few episodes beforehand, but when the pandemic hit, it was like, you beauty, everybody's at home. Let's send out some emails. Yeah. So it thrust you into being a TV, a live television producer and, and host. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's a different world these days, isn't it? You know, com compared to back in when you could just be a guitar player and I guess you had to kind of try and look cool back then. But now, you, like you say, you have to be a TV producer and an audio engineer and the whole lot. Oh, absolutely. Before, you just needed to be a guitar player. Well, you could, should have been more than that, but you, you just need to be a guitar player. Now you have to write, you have to learn how to record your own stuff, mix and produce, and uh, market your own stuff, and then you shoot videos, and now actually be, you know, a lot of people are doing live streams and stuff like that, so performances. So you got to do a lot of things these days. Absolutely. And I think mm -hmm. people don't realize how much goes into the, the marketing self-promotion of artists now which used to be handled by record companies but that's yep. a thing of the past yes yes you need to do it yourself you really Absolutely. do so larry i generally start the conversation by asking people what started the fascination with the guitar so i'm posing you <clears> a question where did it all start mate uh i wanted to play drums and my mom threw my drum set out the window <laughs> I was I was uh I had a toy kit and I was playing and she wanted to watch TV and um didn't work didn't you know she said don't hit the drums and I said okay and then a couple minutes later I started hitting the drums because I told you don't don't hit the drums I'm trying to watch TV and at, you know eight nine years old you only have so much like five minutes is a world of time when you when you want to do something and I hit him again and third story window they went out the back window so. Oh. And uh, how did you progress from that to playing the guitar? Uh, 
Well, I had a toy guitar or or small guitar, and I I wanted to play, so I would kind of strum on that a little bit. And then, um, and when we lived in Brooklyn, I was young. Uh, there was a guy on the block named Mark Brown who played guitar, and he showed me kind of how to play one like a, a song on on uh, one string kind of thing, and that got me fascinated. And then, pretty much, I was that annoying kid that. Uh, every time I saw somebody with a guitar playing, I would go up and go, excuse me, could you show me how to do that? Could you show me one thing? And so I've I've actually held that philosophy where you can learn one thing from everybody you see play guitar. Even if they, you know, they've, they've been playing for a year or something like that, they may approach something different than you would have. And uh, you could you could definitely go learn something from it. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm a firm believer in that, especially as I've gotten older, I've been less guarded with things that I've picked up and shared things with my peers around here and, and they do the same. And it's, it's a great way you can learn from everybody. Absolutely. But yeah. I want to ask you, 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 you said you played drums for a little bit when you were eight or nine. Were you any good? Could you like hold a beat? No. No, uh, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I could do it now. I mean, I produce, I play, I play a lot of instruments on and program a lot of instruments on the records I produce uh -huh. for other artists. Yeah. So I, I do find that that's a very good grounding for people. Um, guys who are great at rhythm guitar, and let's face it, that's 90% 90, 90 of the gig, uh, yes. are usually really good if you give them a set of drumsticks and say, play me some beats. So I was just wondering it's whether a, that was a, a, a follow through for you from when you were young. I definitely listen to and hear drums first. I hear the groove first. And uh, so that, that helps translate. Yeah, most there's a lot of great players. And you think about it, they're great rhythm players, great lead players and are great rhythm players, usually. Um, and also it depends on what you consider great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you got to have that feel of flow. Uh, in order for it to to just kind of just sing along, I should say. Yeah, so, yeah. For the guitar so you, to sing along. You said you started mm -hmm. on a, a toy guitar. Do you remember what your first was a, serious guitar was? Oh, it was a well. Here it was a store called Sears, and it was a guitar called Telstar. Uh, I think it was Telstar. I'm pretty sure it was Telstar, and it was like a Telly. It was uh -huh. a it was a a really odd Telly knockoff kind of thing. Nice. And I see you play kind of more of a Strat style instrument these days with the Nags. Yes, uh, this is my model. This is a Nag Severin LM, and it has my little logo there, which uh, I don't know if you can, you can't really see, but it's a. Uh, there we go. There we oh, go. Oh, nice. Yep, that's it. And uh, it's got uh, more, it's more, it's Joe Nags. Who used to run the PRS? He created the PRS, the Paul Reese Smith um, Private Stock Program. Nice. And uh, in fact, the entire Nags team now is the original Private Stock Program at PRS from years okay. ago. Okay, that's a great company um, there. Yeah, Joe's a definitely just an awesome builder, really a great builder. And this is his designs. He also designed several of the PRS guitars: the Starlin and Mira. Uh, Archtop series, I believe, and the Vela. He designed those for PRS. Um, so it's a, it's got a great neck joint. It's a set neck. And it's his take on, I believe, a 63 uh, Strat. Okay. Uh, I, I wish it was a take on a 64, only because I was born in 1964. 
um, it's got this his uh, his tremolo system on it. So there's this bridge that's more like a telly, this plate where the pickup yep. sits in it. Yep. And in the uh, the whole tremolo is attached to that instead of uh, attached to six screws or two screws and stuff. Okay. Um, so it helps trans transmit a little bit of sustain for it. And um, you know, when when I first met Joe, I went to the factory just because I like guitar factories, and uh, had a great conversation with Joe. And then he let me play all the guitars that were ready, were done. You know, so carefully I'm trying to play because they're they're all like really expensive guitars that are all spoken for. And um, I had normally been a humbucker guy in the back, you know. In fact, mainly for the last probably. Uh, probably 15 years before that, I was a humbucker, single call humbucker. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so one of the things I noticed was there was a slight difference between the guitars at the humbucker here than they do with the single coil. The humbuckers don't have this extra plate. It, uh -huh. it cuts off right there. Yep. And um, acoustically, the guitars felt different to me or really? it sounded different to me. Yeah. And uh, so I said, no, I really want to go with that. He goes, but you normally use a, a single coil. I mean, a humbucker. So I said, I wanted to stick with it because there was something different about that, something special about that. And I spoke with Steve Blucher at Damasio, the vice president of Damasio. He recommended this pickup to go in there. And it was great. I've been happy with it since. So it's a it's a Satch track, you know, Joe Satriani. Cool. Uh, neck, it's the neck version of the of the bridge pickup. Oh, uh, really? Version of the Satriani set in yeah. the bridge. Yeah. So funny that you said your first serious guitar was a, a telly style and now you've come around to using the, the telly style bridge pickup, single coil mounted into yeah. the metal. Yeah. Do you, does that add I, a bit of a twang to it, do you find? Uh, you know, I don't know if it adds a twang. It adds something. It definitely adds a little sustain or something yeah. special about it. Like I said, I go back and forth between, I went back and forth between the ones without, within and without it. Um, and I do have a couple of tellies. You know, as a producer, I produce lots of different singer-songwriters in Native American and world music, uh, gospel, R&B, pop. Um, there's a telly on almost every record that I've ever produced. Because you, you start layering and, you know, you go, I, I want to squeeze one more guitar part. Mm -hmm. You can pick up a telly and find a part and it finds its place in the mix. Yeah. So... It's good to have a telly. Now that said, um, I've rarely taken one out of the house to play live because I'm like, oh, oh, it's just the telly, yeah. <laughs> you know. As my main guitar, I, I don't know if I could do that, but but I I totally relate to that. Um, I'm mostly a Strat style kind of guy, um, mm -hmm. but I did get a Richie Cotton Telecaster about ten years ago now, and I just sold it last week. Oh wow! Um, okay, only because I need to buy a serious amp again. And um, I think I'll get more traditional vintage style telly this time around. But I hear what you're saying like about it just sitting in the mix. I got a little Vox mm -hmm. AC10 um, amplifier back there that when I need yeah. that overdub that just sits right in the mix, Telecaster yeah. through that is just superb. And nice. uh, it, I found the middle position on the pickup selector. So using the bridge and the neck pickup together was the sound that I was chasing for so many years as a Strat guy going, that's just not that sound that I'm trying to get. I've heard other guys doing it. And then I realized they're all, it's always guys who are front men of um, 
of pop bands that are playing at Telecaster that I was trying to recreate. Mm-hmm. So I put the yeah. neck on switch. I got a little switch on all my strats to get the neck and bridge at the same time. And it gets me okay. ballpark, but yeah. Nice. I love that sound. Yeah. love that sound. I got to, I got to try that with a, with the wiring. I'll definitely oh, you, try that. You haven't tried that? It's great. It's great. No, I mean, I, I, I do it with a telly, but I haven't done it with, you know, and a three pickup guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So do you remember what you were playing your original Telecaster through? No, no. Uh, I had, uh, I had a park made a couple of little small amplifiers. Um, they were not, they were not really great amplifiers. Uh, and then later on, I ended up getting um, a uh, Marshall lead 12 remember the lead 12 it was a uh-huh. it was a small 12 watt amp yep i had some of those i had a fender uh um champ uh i had you know the tube champ um i had a music man 110 rd it was a 45 watt amp i believe and then in the 80s i had a couple of different uh couple of different i had a jc 120 i had a i had a, a a used fender twin reverb with with uh uh ev ev120s i guess i think or something like that yep. evl um that amp was so heavy i took it to one gig and sold it before so i didn't have to bring it back i was like dude you're like oh that's a great amp you want to buy it I'm like uh yeah when i was like right now you could have it right now i did not want to carry this back i can relate to that too I, heavy. I had a uh, a randall mts rig uh, over 10 years ago now oh, yeah. uh, with mm-hmm. the, the whole modular setup that's in the Synergy products at the moment. Um, yeah. And it was great. It was in a, a road case. So it had the preamps and the power amp all in one. And I'd have friends ring me up going, hey man, come over for, for a jam. I'd look at my rig and just think, no, I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be bothered taking that anywhere right now. So I totally mm-hmm. relate. Yeah. So I had the uh, Ignator version of that. Oh, Nice. I had it for a while. Yeah. 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 I am tossing up and going that direction again um, with the Synergy. Um, yeah. Loved it. Just the versatility of being able to have whatever module for the gig. Mm-hmm. Speaking of gigs, mm-hmm. how old were you when you started gigging? Um, yeah, I don't remember. It was all like I was in high school. Probably 15. Yeah. 15, 16. And, and do you remember then, uh, what, what after high school, of... mm-hmm. uh, do you remember sorry, what, what you type of band uh, you you started in back then? Was that like uh, uh, funk band, rock? Well, I, I there was a there was I was kind of playing in with some guys in kind of a funk band and in a fusion band, but the band that really got me out to play in clubs was a band called the Cheats, and uh, in high school, um, these are guys that were in my homeroom class. And their guitar player, I don't know, Richie, he left. He's actually the reason that I got to see Van Halen live. For really? his, his mother worked at a place called Nassau Coliseum. And uh, it's like the big stadium then. And um, she got tickets. And somebody he was taking his whole band, but somebody couldn't go. So they brought me. And that was the first time seeing a rock content. It was Van Halen. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then later on, for whatever reason, he was no longer in that band or I went to jam with them, uh, and um, and then he was no longer in the band, and I ended up playing in the band for a while. 
and uh, that was like the my my first time in clubs playing and you know just a bar with a bunch of people drinking and and yelling songs out and stuff like that so that was the beginning of that and that was like probably the last year of high school yeah we were too young to be there but we played anyway (laughs) yeah yeah i i can relate to that one sneaking in uh out through the back at a young age and i can remember actually playing at a show supporting a group that had a couple of hits back in the late 80s over here in in australia and we had to do two sets before them i was a 14 year old kid in a smoky bar in between sets, I just wanted to get out of there, and they wouldn't let me back in. They're like, but I'm in the band. <laughs> and they said, sure, you're in the band. <laughs> Eventually, the, the road crew come out and said, oh, there you are. You know, turned to the, to the security and like, um, told you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you, you said that you had a bit of a, a progression playing first from the telly to your nags, which has the... Um, the single coil and the bridge, but you also went through some humbucker guitars. What type of guitars through the years did you find yourself uh, for uh, that one? Well, I got, um, so, so my first real guitar that I, I would say real guitar after that was an, a used 1976 Ibanez Les Paul cop, the copy, you know, oh, Ibanez nice. Les Paul. And I still have that. And uh, it actually had, um, later on, I met Bill Lawrence, and he gave me an a, a L500 pickup, and I put that in the back. I still have that pickup in the back. And it's a, there's a DiMaggio in the front, and I don't know remember which one it is in the front pickup. Um, and then uh, in 1988, I became an Ibanez artist. Uh, I was with uh, Ibanez uh, for 26 years. Wow. So I went through several, um, I went through... Uh, uh 540rs which became which was the radius and became the 540r yep. then it became the satriani model uh i did 540 just a, i did a couple s models um i was with them for a while and i launched a lot of guitars yep. so um i did the uh like i introduced the the uh low pro edge tremolo oh, cool um the wizard two neck i believe it was and uh, which was a really thin neck, completely thin compared to this. And uh, and then I later on stopped using lock and tremolos and I went to the blazer, which uh, the reissue blazer issue, which is more like a strat. And it was 22 frets, um, had the Wilkinson VSV bridge or the VS 100 first. And uh, so that was like a super strat kind of thing. And nice. I switched to that in uh, um, in uh, 98, I think. 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Wow. And yeah. how about amplifiers? I, I know you're an Axe Effects kind of guy now. What was the progression that got you um, all, the, all through the years up to the Axe Effects? Uh, you know, uh, I went a little hog wild with, with, uh, with uh, rigs back back in the in the uh, early 80s. Uh, when I was after high school, I ended up playing in a band that did Rush covers. We did a tribute to Rush and, a, and then later on tribute to Zebra and the Police and Triumph trio bands. And I had two huge pedal boards, uh, one for clean, one for, for, for dirty. And I love effects. I love just delays and stuff. And uh, then I got into rack stuff. And then when I got my first big tour, um, this Spanish-Italian artist named Miguel Bosé, um, I had the budget to build a real rig. So I was I went full Bradshaw 
uh, TC Electronics 2290, a Mesa Boogie quad power amp, a preamp, and then a, a QSE power amp, and uh, TC Chorus, Rack Mount Chorus, and Yamaha SPX90, the whole full on 80s rig. And uh, I did that for a while and used Harky speaker cabinets. So we used to carry a bunch of 412 cabinets. Um, I even used that rig uh, with some different power amps, a Saldano, a different preamps, a Saldano and a Marshall preamp on a, a, a guy named Billy Squire. I don't know if he was popular there, but I did a tour with Billy Squire. And uh, so I wish I was into vintage guitars and old amps then, because Billy Billy had 58 burst and 57 gold tops and a no cast on the road. And uh, his idea of a, of a channel switching amp was a 100 watt Marshall Plexi for clean and a 50 watt JCM 800 for lead with an AB box and a, and a, a wah pedal. And you start the concert out with a no caster, then you go up to to a 57, uh, a 59 Les Paul Jr. with a P90. Then you go to a 57 gold top, and then then you finish the night with off with a, a 58 burst. Wow. And it's like okay, and I, here I am stepping on buttons and stuff like, which was cool, is different. But I wish I was into that as well back then. Yeah. I'm into it now. Yeah. yeah. Um. So when I got off the road, I was and at my first record came out in 1990. I was using that rig as well and playing uh, clubs where I took up half the stage with my rig, you know, <laughs> those kind of days. And then um, in the 90s, the mid 90s, somehow I ended up switching to a pedal board. And uh, it was because a lot I was living in Manhattan and a lot of stuff was in storage. And I got called to do just a gig, a sideman gig, and I ran to a store, and they let me borrow a Fender Pro Junior, little 110, uh, one volume knob, one tone knob. Uh -huh. And I was like, all right, it'll, it'll do. And I had a couple pedals, and I plugged in and did the gig, and I was like, why does amp sounds great? But I was so used to playing the stereo, I kept trying. I tried a Laney. I tried a couple other things that I had access to. And then I moved to San Diego, walked into a local music store, and they had another tweed and the the one that I had was oh so I went back to the music store and I said yeah I don't want to bring this back I I'd like to buy it and they sold it to me really cheap and it was a great amp and I still have it actually and uh, so when I lived in San Diego I uh, walked into a local music store and there was another Tweed Pro Junior there and I traded for that and then that was my rig two Tweed Pro Juniors remember the Boss Chorus Ensemble yep the original uh, yeah that was what I used to split the signal and. Um, uh some boss delays and different different overdrive units here and there and stuff like that and uh and then um in uh 2000s i was living in new mexico and started playing with some native american artists and we were traveling a lot and all by plane uh -huh. and uh trying to get on a plane with a pedal board with 10 pedals and then two pedals that aren't on the pedal board because it was all backline. So you had to have the right overdrive. So I would take either two overdrives or two distortions. And because the the overdrives didn't work if, if they gave, you know, you have uh, two small fender amps, two tube fender amps on your rider. And then you show up and there's like a JC120 and something else that's solid state. And you go, the overdrives aren't going to work. So uh -huh. you have to use distortion pedals. So I was flying with all these pedals, and then I, I remember reading something on, um, I think it was the gear page, with this guy, Scott Peterson, and he was talking about this thing called the Fractal Audio Axe Effects. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And I, I figured at least it would work for effects, 
And I was so pleasantly surprised about the gain and the amp sims and stuff like that. So I've been doing the fractal thing for uh, since 2008, 2007, 2008. Wow. I still have I still have real lamps. I love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple there. So that's nice. what I actually use in uh, inside the fractal. It's a, a plexi and then a, a tremolux. Yep. I use those two in uh, most of the time in the uh, fractal. Um, and I love effects too, you know, all pedals and stuff like that. Yeah, too. yeah. It, it is very close these days, isn't it? The... Close enough for me. Definitely yeah. close, enough, yeah. close yeah. enough for me. The consistency, the travel, to get there, do a sound check, hit a chord and go, yeah, that's my sound. Um, I tell you, uh, so here you go. In 2019, I flew to Australia and I played in Australia for my the first time ever cool. for me. And uh, I did a the strings attached uh, guitar festival in uh, Margaret, on the Margaret River. Yep, Margaret River. Yep. Uh, and I also played Brisbane, and I took some pictures on the Gold Coast there. Um, I did not bring a rig. Uh, I called. I, I spoke with my friend Leon Todd, and and I said, "Do you have an a, a fractal AX8 that I could borrow?" He said, "Yes." I emailed him my patches. He sent it over to Brisbane from where he was on the on the other coast. Yep. Uh, I plugged in. I got there. Got the AX8. Plug. Uh, I think I landed and got to uh, this office where I did. I I do a Tuesday night live show here, which is Wednesday morning there. Yep. And I had maybe two hours to do my Wednesday morning the, the Tuesday night live show. Uh, I pulled his unit out of the box, plugged in, hit a couple of sounds, said, okay, I'm ready, set up my cameras and stuff like that. And I went live and did my show with a rig that I had never, you know, his version of my rig. Yep. And it worked. Same thing. I went to Korea in 2019. I borrowed. Um, I reached out and said, Is, does anyone in, in, in Seoul have uh, uh, any X8 I could borrow for two days and uh, work out some sort of trade? And the guy came to the hotel room he said yes nice to meet you we took some pictures he lent me his rig i i did my show from the hotel room i did the performance i was supposed to do met him gave it back and uh and flew home and it was great that's the kind of world we're in these days which is amazing you know absolutely absolutely you know i've i've been dangerously close to to going down that road again i i was using a kemper a few years back, mm-hmm. I was playing in a, in a Queen tribute show, jumping on oh, cool. airplanes every every weekend. And yeah, as a fly rig, I, I think I was probably one of the first guys in Australia touring with the Kemper. And the sound guys, you'd see them, hello, what's this? They plug in a couple of Canon uh, XLRs and then play a few notes. And it became a joke because we just knew that people would be running down to the front of the stage going, what is that you're playing through, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they are great. Mm-hmm. There's... Is it a hundred percent there? I've oh man, I listen to so many A B comparisons and it is so close. It is so close. You know, you know, I don't worry about the comparisons because uh from living the eight in the eighties, uh, you could take ten marshals and line them up and one's gonna sound horrible, one or two might sound amazing, three might be like, Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> but they could be from the same run from the same year. They all sound different. Yeah. So, um, 
it works as long as it, as long as I have a sound that I, I'm not. I don't feel like I'm compromising and using a sound that I don't like or, I, or don't love. I, yeah. You know, I'm perfectly happy with it. Uh, I still love. Uh, they're all tools to me. I still love these. I'm not taking any of these amps out on the road. Uh, tube amps for me, taking them on the road, having to replace tubes and stuff like that. The most thing I could see doing was I love that rig with the pedal board and the two pro juniors to small. I might take them to a club locally where I can drive to real quick. Yeah. Um, but it was a joke when I lived in New Mexico and I, and I had those two pedal board, I mean, t- those two four juniors. I lived on a dirt road. It was bumpy. And I would have to take the tubes out going to the gig and coming back. Otherwise, the tubes would just be jacked up. Wow, wow. <laughs> it, it was so bad. And I had a road case, too. If I, I didn't want to take the road case to a local gig. But after a while, I started taking a road case to a local gig. And I would still take the tubes out. You know, it would just be not good. they become microphonic real quick. Yeah, right. I'm going to have to check out the Axe FX3. I've had a lot of guests uh, on who have gone that way. Um, I'll, I'll try and get my hands on one and, and see. It might be the, the way to go, seeing as I'm at a bit of a crossroads rig-wise. Uh, I, I did yeah. borrow a, a Soldano SLO100 to play a Van Halen uh, memorial tribute thing a couple of weeks ago, and oh, my God, that sounded glorious. Nice. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. So, Larry, production's a big part of your world as well. When did you get a start with production? Is that something that just always went hand-in-hand hand with being a player for you or was there a moment where you went stuck your hand up and went i'm gonna have a go at this uh you know i messed around with it but i didn't understand what i was doing and stuff like that early and then um i was always in studios on the other side of the glass on the playing side and then uh too long to get into now but some things happened in uh in 92 93 94 that left me like i don't know what to do and those days you didn't, you, it was still, you could, it was at the beginning of like, you didn't have to have a massive studio to do a record. You still had to have a lot of money. You had to, have to buy a lot of gear. Not like today where you could do it on a laptop or an iPad or something like that. Yeah. And still have quality sound. If you know what you're doing, you can still have quality sound and multiple tracks. Um, but a friend of mine gave me the keys to his house and said, you need to make a record. Here's the keys to my house. And he had studio gear in his basement. And, uh, I, you know, and then, so I was down there alone and I didn't, I was like, wow, I've never been on this side completely. And I remember making phone calls to some amazing friends and people that put, um, you know, mega stars on hold to tell me how to hook up compressors <laughs> into a mixing board there. And, um, and I did my own record and, uh, uh, when I ended up, it's a long story, but when that record was finished, what, I did two records. One was horrible, one was really good. Um, uh, when that record was finished and it was having some success, it showed me that I could do this on my own. Back when people weren't doing it necessarily on their own, not everybody was doing it on their own. So when I moved to San Diego, I got some gear. I got put together a little home studio with the the technology at that at that time and which was a pretty effective studio and i was working on my stuff and i would meet local musicians and they go oh, you have a studio can you help me record a single and uh so i would do a, a song with quite a few artists that, that i had met and then a year later i'm still working on my record 
And they came back to me and said, hey, I'm doing a whole record and I really like what you did. Can we work out something so you, you know, work with me? And then, I, you know, I was learning the, it, it's really hard to learn production and engineering at the same time. It's two different sides of the brain. Uh -huh. But so I was learning the engineering for that first year and uh, and feeling feeling comfortable. You're always learning as an engineer, always learning as an engineer. But I felt comfortable that I could start getting into the production choices and, and making decisions and stuff. And uh, so I ended up producing three records for three artists uh, at that time. And that led me on a path to production. And then when I got to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, they have a, a really cool New Mexico Music Awards show and stuff like that. So someone introduced me to that. I was producing lots of different artists, all different styles of music. I said, I listened to all different styles of music and uh, started winning some awards in that. And that just propelled me the more on the production side. And then... Um, I was playing live with a Native American artist named Robert Mirabal, and his record label asked me to produce a couple of things. And um, and the first time I remember them saying, "All right, so this record that you just did, it's uh, it's in a running for a Grammy." I'm like, "What?" It's like, okay, I said, not even was never even in my thought process. And then the second record uh, we did in a series, or the third record we did it in uh, in a new series, um, was nominated for a Grammy and won. And I was like, so that propelled me more into production. That sends you right down the path of like, oh, you got to produce more. And unfortunately, when I was living in New Mexico, I only did uh, 14 of my shows in 10 years. I did sideman shows with other artists, but and I did a lot of production, but only did 14 of my shows okay. in 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, now I'm in Alabama and it's completely, it's, I, I've been striving for a balance between production uh, playing with other artists, playing for other artists, and playing my own shows, doing clinics, teaching, um, uh, all kinds of things. So, uh, just a balance. The the line seems to have been blurred in recent years between what is a producer and what is an engineer. I see a lot of kids that go to uh, do a course for a couple of years, and they come out and they say, oh, "I'm a producer now. I know how to use Ableton Live or something." and I sit there and have, yeah. well, they say, oh, I'm an engineer. I know how to do this. And I kind of struggle. I think, you know, I've, I've made my own records for a long time. I don't consider myself an engineer because I, I don't know the technical too much side mm -hmm. of things too much. But uh, how would you define a producer versus an engineer? Uh, well, there is a there is a blurred line. Um, it still has to be a little bit more rigid than what we were just talking about. Uh, uh, right now, I am like I'm considered an all-in-one producer, so I work with solo artists usually, and I am also playing most of the instruments on there, whatever they don't play, uh, at least to get started. And if we have the budget, um, and there's someone that I think it's right to to replace something that I did, um, then I'm all about hiring them to replace what I something that I did. So it could be bass, it could be guitar, it could be keyboards or, or drums. Um, but I, I like to paint the picture first and then go, all right, this section of the picture could be better if we get so-and-so to do that. Um, an engineer is a problem solver. An engineer is someone that listens to what's going on and goes, all right, I know how to record that, capture it and, and do it. And um, 
someone comes in and goes, I'm in a punk band. I got this ratty sounding guitar uh, through this ratty sounding pedal through this ratty sounding amp, but that's my sound. So the only job the engineer's job is to do is to capture that. Maybe to go, all right, just check your tuning, but we're ready to go. I'm going to capture that as best as possible. A producer's job is to go, yeah, that's a nice sound, but maybe we should try a different guitar through the ratty pedal, through uh -huh. the ratty amp, and maybe you should play this part. Yep, to play the part you just played, yep, go into the other part. A producer uh, has to see the big picture, has to help an artist um, not shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> and also bring out the best of an breast in an artist. So I don't think a producer's job is to go, hey, you know, you're really weak here, so you should go work on that. Uh, by that point, you're you're in a studio, you're, re you're ready to make a record. Uh, your, your, your job is to make sure that people's confidence is as strong as possible. So maybe not focus on the weak, but focus on the strong and build around that, what they're strong at and uh, bring the best of them out. And they can work on that other stuff later on, maybe for another record or through the live thing, it'll help them. But it's really to go, all right, so you want to make a record, reggae record, but you're from Ireland and you have a country twang. <laughs> so... If you've created a two unique style, that's great. But right now, I'm not sure if this is really v believable. Uh, so let's find, maybe we can do a pop version of it with a little bit of a country twang. Uh, but we're not going down the road of trying to do a legitimate Stone Cold reggae record because that's not going to work. You know, you also have to bring the artist into a bit of reality a, a little bit here and there. Uh -huh. So... Um, uh, there are a lot of guys that are that are there's a you know younger generation that that gets a, a machine and they can make beats and and that's what they have to call it. I'm a producer. I make beats and stuff, mm -hmm. and they sell a beat. Yeah. Uh, that's not what I do. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing the whole song, if not the whole record, yeah. and uh, and we talk about the record beforehand. Usually, what kind of record do you want to make? What kind of artist are you? Are you 22 to 24 and trying to make a pop record? Are you 45 to 55 and you want to make a record, maybe old school sounding, that's not super commercial today? You know, um, do you, you know, uh, I had an, uh, a, a singer, she's a friend of mine uh, when I lived in Mexico and we were talking, we were just talking, we met for some other reason, but we started talking about stuff and she goes, you know, you producer, you're doing all this stuff. You should produce me. I said, I don't know. And um, she goes, well, I'm tired of all these other producers. They all want to make me country. I'm not country. I'm like, I'm listening to her twang in her voice. Yeah. And I said, I tell you what, um, I'm going to program a drum beat. No other instruments. So I programmed a straight up hip hop drum beat. I made a beat. Hip hop, as hip hop as you can get. And I said, sing your song over this. And she sang it. I played it back. She goes, why does that sound country to me? I said, the only thing in it is you and a drum beat. And the drum beat is hip hop. So I don't think you're going to get away from that. So again, you have to be a, a little dose of reality. Uh, that's what she sounds like naturally. Yeah. So I can't change that. I could try and force it, but 
I also believe in making things that are believable and real. And, and for a singer, the most important thing is if you don't believe it, and you you can't make me believe it, mm. and then I don't want to listen to it. So, anyway, I absolutely agree with you there. So, Larry, <clears throat> to be handy in a studio, especially when it comes to mixing, etc., you you need to have a good tone, a good ear for good tones. Um, I've heard it said before that you can teach somebody how to pull a good guitar sound, but they have to know what a good guitar sound is in their head to be able to, to recreate it. What are some mm -hmm. benchmark tones for you? Benchmark tones. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I strive to be me, especially as a guitar player. Yeah. Um, as different as I can be to be me. And uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is that people can have said that they've heard me and they've heard some recording and they knew it was me right away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I can tell you guitarists that I that I love guitar sound wise. Yeah. And uh, it started with Prince, um, uh, Nile Rogers mm -hmm. from Chic, and a great producer, uh, Eddie Van Halen, just hit me hard, and then Eric Johnson really hit me hard. Wow. Um, and then I was into Andy Summers and uh, Alex Lyson from Rush. Um, so those are guitar sounds that, that really left a mark on me. Uh, so whatever sounds that I go for, uh, go for. And also uh, the, the local neighborhood hero when I grew up as a teenager was a guy named Steve Stevens. Uh -huh. And he's the guitar player, Billy Idol. And Steve had a, a, a sound and it was like, okay, all right, that's, and he was into effects and stuff like that. And Steve is, Steve is just great. But, um, uh, so I don't really try to emulate other people's sounds, which is again, why like, you know, certain things don't, uh, about if, uh, what I don't understand about models, people get modelers and they go, I want this sound. I want the exact same sound. I know what it's like, what it takes to make a record and, Whatever sound you're listening to in the final isn't the way the guitar started out mm -hmm. in the studio. Uh, it's been compressed uh, tracking, probably. It's been definitely compressed in the mix. It's been EQ'd, shaved off, shaved down to fit in the mix of a song. Uh, no one says, oh, this is a great guitar sound. Build a whole record around guitar, that guitar sound. You still got to, you know, the minute there's a vocal on it, it is the vocal is the most important thing on the record. Absolutely. If it's an instrumental, that's great. If the minute you put a vocal on there, it is the most important. If people ha can't hear the vocal or don't like the vocal, they are not going to stick around for the guitar solo. Yeah. So, um, um, so, and then it's been mastered. So it's been EQ'd and compressed some more, the whole thing. So um, I just go for a, the sound that I hear in my head, which is uh, I try to not to make it too bright and um, to make it full and um it just it, it has to move me a little bit um <laughs> i i used to have a student that would buy some of my gear uh as i would get through go through gear and, and um and he would buy he would replace his rig and then come see me play and i'd have a completely different another different rig and he yeah. goes how come you always have a different rig every like couple of every couple of six months or so and um but you still sound the same. I said, I don't know. I'm still hearing the same sounds. I'm still reaching for the same sounds. And that works for you and against you. I've had uh, people uh, 
buy an amp or or a modeler and they go, I can't get get this thing to sound good at all. And they're making everything that they try. They've tried all the modelers, or you know, tried a couple of amps that people say are great amps, and uh, and they keep ending up with pretty close to the same sound in the same ballpark. Yeah. So they're it's what they hear. That yeah. you know, the, there's not much you can do about it. You, I guess, you have to retrain yourself if you don't like that sound. You have yeah. to retrain your ears to look for something different. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So I, I look for a fullness. Um, and I, I still think that I'm more concerned with the clean sound first, getting the right clean sound, and then that sets up where I need to feel for the lead tones, for the dirty tones. Okay. Uh, if I go for just trying to, like if I try a new amp or something like that, and I go for the dirty tones first, uh, my, my judgment might be skewed. If I start with the clean sound, I can find the right clean sound easily. Yeah, right. Uh, or close to it. Once I find that and I go back and forth to the dirty sound, that helps me shape like where I need to, where the dirty sound needs to go. Might not be exact, that. but it's in a ballpark. I'm going to try that approach. I can't say I've tried it that way. Now, you, you mentioned about the lead vocal being the most important thing. Once, once there's a singer on there, it all becomes about that. A great bit of advice that I came across on the internet was metal producer Andy Sneap when asked about how he mixes guitar solos and he said he treats it like a lead vocal and when i read that the 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 penny dropped for me i tried eqing it the way i would a lead vocal to take up the same space and wow all of a sudden it's like yeah there it is i was i was treating it like a a guitar previously trying to make it find its little place to to sit in and not get in everybody's road but it's like no we're taking over we're the lead with the the lead vocal for now and is yeah. that an approach if, you take? If, yeah, well, anything that if there's a sax solo, anything that comes in that the main focus needs to be treated like the lead vocal because it, it it temporarily is the lead vocal. The star, to so to speak. Yeah, it's the star of yes. of what's going on. Yeah. 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 And it, it's amazing just the gear that we have at our disposal now. You, you mentioned Steve Stevens. Oh. I had I had Steve on here. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, he's he's a great guy to talk to, uh, and he said that he he believes with there's never been a better time f- as players f- for gear than now, just with everything that's available to people. And I've I've heard him playing through an Axe Effects and recreating some of his uh, classic sounds from records that we all know. And you're like, whoa, listen to that! But then, um, yeah, I, I had the pleasure of seeing him live as well, uh, just before the yeah. pandemic. And his guitar sound was amazing, but he was using heads through uh, a load box and speaker IRs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was mm-hmm. just, just before we went to air, was just saying about how much he loved the speaker IR technology uh, and that he'll never mic up his cabs on stage again. And Oh, yeah. It is an exciting time. It is a great time to be a guitar player or a musician. Not the best time to try and make a living at it, but... It is the probably the best time it's ever been. Uh, cheap guitars are better than they ever were. Uh-huh. Um, you could dial up a modeler on your phone, and as long as you have the right interface to connect to it, 
you have a rig that when we were like 16, 17, we would have killed for. We were like, oh, this is the most amazing guitar sound. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have that back then. You know, you didn't have a practice amp that was just sounded like the best rigs ever. Yeah. Um, and the fact that you could also record it. You could record it, you know, we had, if you if you lucky were lucky enough to have a four track, one of the Roland or, or the, the 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 boss or the Roland uh, or Tascam, Tascam, uh, yeah, four tracks, or maybe maybe you had an a, an eight track, but all right, it was you know, I you know you can have a, you can have twenty four track on your phone, right now, mm-hmm. uh, with plugins, compressors and stuff, yeah. Um, the pedals, the quality of delays that we have now, you know, it's like, all right, so, well, you know, we had a lot of analog delays. Well, we have, we have digital delays that mimic analog delays right now, or you could just buy analog delays right now, or you could buy something that has digital analog, anything farm, you know, just the fact that I can have from that sound. Can you hear that? Sure can. From that sound to this sound. In a second. Yeah. It's amazing. I remember when when uh, presets happened and MIDI and, and channel switching and just like to be able to move all of your devices to go to... I'm moving one device. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm moving within it. And it, it's an amazing time to be a guitar player right now. Absolutely. A musician. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can remember... Um, well, it was probably very early 90s when I got myself uh, an ADA preamp and a quadriverb and was able to MIDI switch all that. And yep. I used to see these guys doing all the tap dancing. I'm like, man, get get with the program. And uh, I I yeah. did uh, a problem. There's an ADA right behind me, right? It's all backwards there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I did a little demo of that, comparing that to the old JMP1, the Marshalls, uh, a few months ago. And... Yeah, back then I thought that those things were great, but there's a bit of an articulation just missing. Uh, I find yeah. like when I go to play like a a major seven chord or something, it, it, it's not a pleasant sound. This <laughs> sound sort of takes yeah. over where a note should be. Uh, that's one thing I noticed mm-hmm. with some high end amplifiers uh, versus some not so high end. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Larry, we said about how times have changed now um, and Streaming is a big thing, and, and you're quite a streamer yourself, yeah? I stream two shows a week, and actually, uh, I've been streaming for four years now. Um, really? Three years before the pandemic happened, I started doing a, what I call Tuesday Night Live, and streaming every Tuesday, no matter where it was. Uh, I've done it from airports, baggage claim, almost did it on an air in a, on, a, on a plane at one point. Um, I've done it at the gate. Uh, I've done it in friends' backyards. I've done it in green rooms before a show or after a show, like a live show. Um, and I would just play some songs and tell people what's going on and where I was going to be. And like I said, when I got to Australia in 2019, uh, within two hours of landing, I was doing uh, uh, my live stream show, which was Wednesday morning there. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, when the pandemic hit, um I, you know, it's just everybody was streaming. So I started doing more and I stepped it up a little bit. I got uh, a different switcher system thing and uh, incorporated some other videos. 
and uh, just learning about it. I kept getting asked questions about how to stream. And I was like, so it forced me to do some more research. And it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm going to try and add that to my show. And then um, something happened. I can't remember uh, what caused me to do it. But I, I said I started streaming on a, on a Sunday every now and then. And then um, someone said, you should make that a regular thing. It's nice to have the two shows. I go, well, I don't want to repeat myself. So Tuesdays became electric, and then I started doing all all acoustic on Sunday nights. Cool. And Sunday nights has taken on its own mellow vibe. Um, we call it, I call it, it happened on a Sunday. And it just so happens I had like some popcorn that I made. And uh, so I, I just like would tell people, all right, so we're going to play, grab your popcorn or, or chocolate, you know, candies and some hot chocolate or coffee, whatever, and just hang out. And it's just ethereal to some, so I have two acoustic records. Now I have, or actually I had an acoustic record from 95 and now I have a second one and, uh, that I released last November uh, called The Light Within. And actually there's a song in that record called uh, uh, Popcorn and Chocolate. And it directly <laughs> yeah. comes from Sunday nights and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So yeah, so I stream and it's been, uh, I love getting messages from people uh, we are at some crazy, unprecedented times, mm -hmm. and it's uh, some people are thriving in it, and others are not, big time. And um, so it's been stressful. Uh, and whenever you think, oh well, you know, it's not that bad, and then something else happens, and you're like, oh, it's really bad, you know, because I, you know, most of us are on are teetering on like. Okay, all right. This is this is a little bit much. This is weird. What's going on? You got the rains going. You got the floods going on there, yeah. right? And and it's a pandemic. You couldn't leave your house, but now you really can't leave your house because you know you might drown. <laughs> and uh, and when you stop to think about what's going on, it's heavy, you know. So uh, for an hour or so on a Sunday night or a Tuesday night, I, uh, I'm able to to uh, help some people through something like that. Um, wasn't trying to, but I was just playing relaxing, cool music. And I would just get some amazing uh, emails, uh, actual handwritten letters, um, text messages from people, how, th how they loved and needed the music at the time. And it just and it so I was like, all right, I'm gonna continue doing this every Sunday. And then I set a set them both at the same through the through the recommendations of people that watch the show over and over, um, uh, the time period. So it's nine o'clock Eastern time on a, a PM Eastern time, and um, yeah, and I have people that have been watching that tune in on Tuesday nights that have been watching for all four years, wow. like they watch every week. Yep. And now I have a, a, a group of people that watch every Sunday. Uh, they're there. They're, it's a community in the in the, in the comments and people just talk and, uh, you know, they talk to each other. They uh, say stuff to me they to let everybody know where they're from. Um, and then Tuesday night, there are some that uh, there's quite a few that people that watch every Tuesday night and every Sunday night. And uh, I... Uh, I'm honored that people would want to spend two nights of a week, you know, watching me play guitar, which is, which is great. That's you know, awesome. Man. Gonna, That's totally yeah. awesome. So Larry, I, I do want to ask you, and I ask this of, of most people, how they approach the fretboard 
because everybody is different. And I always learn, we talk about learning from, from your peers, how they approach it all. But I just want to throw in there that um, anybody that's watching that wants to ask Larry any questions, uh, drop them into the uh, chat window now. I saw there was a, a few popped up earlier, but just to save me going through all those, um, throw your questions at, at Larry now as I ask him, mm -hmm. how do you approach the fretboard, mate? Uh, to me, soloing is like speaking. So you want to phrase, uh, actually one thing I get from Steve Vai, which, which is about singing what you play and, uh, your mind won't let you sing anything silly, which means you won't play anything silly. Okay. Um, but, uh. Uh, what I teach when I'm at like Vi Academy or, or something, and I'm, I try to stress that uh, you work on techniques, not to let techniques um, dictate. So you work on, you work on, uh, um, uh, let me put some tone on here. Uh, yeah. So you might work on picking everything. You might work on slurring or hammer-ons and pull-offs. Uh, <laughs> you might work on bending. You might work on using both fingers. Um, you work on fast playing. You should work on slow playing. They're all little techniques to help you communicate. Soloing is communicating. So uh, the best analogy I have, is, as I say, is uh, if I go, hey, Rick, look at that guitar over there. Or, hey, Rick, look at that guitar over there. Hey, Rick, look at that, look at that guitar over there. I just said the same thing three different ways, uh -huh. right? Yep. And that's how you should approach soloing. They all three meant something different. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you want to convey that. So you, we don't speak like this the whole time. Mm -hmm. We don't speak like this every whole time. And we don't speak like this the whole time. So don't play that way. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yep. So don't, don't just put the guitar and go. You know, and don't, you know, don't go. It's all about changing. Um. My ears keep cutting it out. But anyway, it's a little bit of of uh how you would the flow of how you would speak uh you speed up when it's urgent to give a little bit of urgency yep um you slow down so when you when you're communicating and you want to stress something you want people to really understand something you you could speed up to let them know that oh something this is urgent and you can slow down to let them know that this is urgent and uh when you're speaking, you're not thinking about that. That's just years of process. Yeah. 
of hanging out with your friends, learning stuff in school. Soloing should be the same way. Is it you want to? This is the mood that I want to uh, interject. This is the mood that I want to present. This is the mood I'm in. And this is what I want to say. And it's the same thing. It's like you, you have years of playing fast, years of playing slow. It's uh, playing all one way doesn't make any sense because you don't speak that way. You don't communicate uh, that way. Absolutely. So that's, that's great advice. That's how, I how about in terms of like roadmaps of seeing where the right notes are? Are you, do you use what they call the cage system? playing around the chords are you a three note per string kind of guy do you combine all of that is there a particular way that you view the roadmap so to speak uh it's again it's all about the techniques that you learn over the years and over time and use whatever you need to to do um i'm i'm big on learning a fretboard knowing where the notes on the fretboard and knowing that this e are slightly different and that's very different so you might want to uh, you might want to end up there. Uh, or end up there. They sound they all sound different to me. But knowing where they are is a key thing and knowing what the other notes are. So I, I guess I play, tend to play more around the entire key yep. and knowing and also knowing what the chords are um, and having an idea of where I want to fit around the chords. But I'm not necessarily playing arpeggios through a chord yep. uh, kind of guy, unless, unless the part calls for it, you know, in uh, more of a pop uh, sideman kind of thing. The solo might take on that. Yep. Uh, in my thing, it's more uh, bluesy rock, funk rock kind of thing. I'm doing it. I guess it ends up being more modal, but I'm thinking just more of the to- the the, t- the uh, key tonal center. Yep. Um, and just just knowing the fretboard. Uh, if you to me, if you know the fretboard, then you there's less guessing and more experimenting. It's like, I want to go north. I want to go south. I want to go east or west. I want to go deeper, higher. Um, and then you just go where you want to go. But I mean, everything is in four frets. Yep. And Because so I, I did see you kind of jumping from position to position as you were playing in uh, what some people call the cage system. So based around the C, A, G, E, D. Um, is that how you've arranged things? Like when, when you've got little clusters of notes or have you got some other way that, okay, we're playing in A. I know there's my A note. And if it's a major, then I've got a major third there. If it's minor, I've got a minor third there. Are you? Yeah. I never officially learned the cage system. So <laughs> maybe I should learn it. Um, I never did. In some I just learned myself. a fretboard. Yeah. Okay. So I, I found out that that's a, a name for something that, a lot of people have been doing for a while, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just based around the, the C, A, G, E, and D chord shapes. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those things a few years ago. I mentioned I was playing in a, in a Queen tribute show and I started seeing a lot of um, videos of myself on YouTube from the crowd when I was taking extended solos. And I realized that I only had two chunks of the fretboard completely sussed out that if I ventured outside of that I would land on a lot of wrong notes so I thought it's mm. time to learn the fretboard and I started asking people 
how they approach it. And that's where I had a few people say, man, I, I, I just play around these different chord shapes or some were the three note per string. And it's, it is mm-hmm. funny just to see how everyone is so different with how they do it. Yeah. I, at one point when I was doing the Van Halen stuff, that was like, oh, three notes per string is the fastest way to play. And it's like, all right, cool. So I would do work on that. All the stuff I, you worked on, I worked on for a long time. But then later on, it just became a tool. Yep. And it became more about communication. How It's hard to explain what because we're not playing with the, anything or anyone right now. Yeah. But uh, which I play very differently in a live setting or, or over something than I do just sitting here trying to explain it but um yeah i worked on i worked on three notes like i said i worked on that i worked on bending um uh, i always joke about you know when at one point when i was really young i was working on bending and when you're 12 years old you can sit there and go and my mom would come in and go what are you doing i was like i'll work on bending she goes all right, that, that's starting to drive me crazy, you know, <laughs> play something different. And we're like, okay, all right, cool. And seriously, I went. And she came in and I'm like, oh, crap, that's not any different. <laughs> to me, it was a world of different. But to her, it was exactly the same thing. And um, uh, so you work on all those techniques. But at some point, music is not about what techniques you're good at. It's about communicating. So you use all those techniques, you know, I've done solos where I, there was no fast run. There was no three notes per string at all. It's a, it's a four bar solo and it has to convey something different. And, and it might be the chord. It might be, uh, uh, oh, I wish I could remember. There's a Steve Lukather solo that's one note. Is it Steve Lukather? Oh, maybe it's not. Um, it's one of the early session guys. Um, but it's like one note for four bars, and then it's an insane run, the last, or three bars, three and a half bars, and then an insane run, the last part of it. Yeah. It's like one, and it's just feedback, and then then it takes off. But it's it that alone conveys so much uh, about the song that it was in. It was just uh. like this one note, and it's hanging, and it's an edge of feedback, and then the release is... Uh, is a fast run as opposed to a fast run and it releases one long note at the end, but it was perfect for the song at the time. Um, so the idea is to work on all those techniques and then not have to think about them when you're, when you're actually performing, when you're trying to communicate, you know, can you imagine being, being on a date and you have to stop and go, all right, I'm going to talk about this now. And all right, so I should have to do this and do that and do this. But you want to just be free and all your experiences you can pull from is like, is this appropriate in the conversation now? Yes. All right, cool. Yeah, you don't you don't stop and think about that. It just flows out, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um anyway, that's you know, it. that that whole thing of the restraint, you said the, the one note and then just a flurry of notes at the end. You know, Ed Van Halen was great at that. There's certain songs of his like um dreams. <clears throat> you know, he's just playing two notes for most of it. Uh, and then you know, mm-hmm. towards then he gets a bit more melodic, but he always sort of caps off with those little, the sprinkle, the the, the liquidy at the end to, to yeah. climax. You know, it's it, it's he sets it up, he sets it up so well. Um, Steve Steve mm-hmm. Vai's the same man, you know. Yeah, 
incredible. I, I've been lucky enough to, to to be on stage and jam with Steve quite a few. The very first time was an Ibanez 100th anniversary party in, uh, in uh, Nagoya, Japan. And I remember being excited that I was there and on stage. And at the end, we're all jamming. And then at, at some point, I looked over and I go, wait, who, who made this order? Because it was Andy Timmons, one of my, my two favorite guitar players in the world, Andy Timmons and Eric Johnson. Wow. Right? And then, so it's Andy Timmons, who I've known for 30 plus years, uh, Marty Freeman, and then Paul Gilbert, who's insane at everything, just insane at everything. And then Steve Vai, and then myself. And I'm thinking, all right, uh, so no technically, pressure. as it goes in the round, I'm, I'm soloing in the middle of Steve Vai and Andy Timmons. So when Steve does a solo and you're like, oh, man, it's great. Did you see that? Did you say all that whole time you're saying, did you see that? Did you, I can't believe it. I'm soloing. And then Andy comes on and uh, and Simon Phillips is drumming. It's Simon Phillips, Jeff Bowders and Pat Torpy. Uh, and uh, the thing I remember about that was. I had known Steve, but this is the first time we've been on stage playing, and also we're right next to each other. So we were communicating from soundcheck on, and uh, and then he would do this amazing solo, and I'd be playing the rhythm going, oh yeah, okay, all right, that's that's Steve Vai. Uh-huh, okay, oh wow, wow, oh wow, oh. <laughs> and then it's my turn, and he literally would just go hand, you know, wave on to me, and I would have to play, and there's nothing more intimidating that can be more intimidating than having Steve Vai standing next to you, yelling, encouraging things to you while you're soloing after he just did a monster solo. And, you know, you have to you have to end it off and, you know, you have to hand it off to Andy, <laughs> you know, but Steve is Steve is literally right here yelling really positive, cool stuff. And uh, so since then, I've jammed with Steve, and we have a really good time jamming. I've been uh, um, just at different shows. I've shown up, and, and he's brought me on. And, but also, uh, I've done two years at the uh, Vi Academy uh -huh. and uh, gotten to jam with them, two years of teaching and running the jam sessions uh, at night, one of, you know, one of the jam sessions at night. And uh it, it's really cool playing with Steve, and I, I and also he. We never play a song uh, anymore. It's always like Larry starts something funky, and I always do something funky, and it, and it, it's cool. Uh, so we have a really good time. Uh, it, but it, it's it's Steve Vai, you know, doing and, something. And you mentioned Andy Timmons as well, man. What a monster! What an absolute monster! Oh. Um, so you know my friend Licia, Licia Louise. Um, yes, yeah. And She's it was great. probably about a year ago. Um, I, I do a fair bit of recording with, with, with Licia. She's in here in a couple mm -hmm. of days' time, actually. Um, and there was one time about a year ago, she was asking about different guitar players. She's always on the hunt for, for new things to soak in. And, and I brought up uh, Andy Timmons, and we watched some of that. And she <laughs> was just absolutely blown away. Um, How could you yeah, not be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that right blend of touch and flash but all just the right thing at the right time that's such an art right thing at the right time yeah and you feel every note andy's playing mm, mm, absolutely absolutely so larry i'm just going to go there was a couple of questions that, that slipped by there was a lot of uh kudoses and hellos from everybody um but cool. there was a couple of questions here does larry have a connection to 
Keen NH. I'm not sure what NH is. That's probably a state. Um, Keen, New Hampshire. I used yeah, to go up yeah, there yeah. and play uh, in um, 93, 94. Yeah. I seem to remember. Who's that Route 9 Records, does Larry have a connection to Keen NH? I seem to remember a signed photo at Retro Music. Yeah, I don't I don't know who that is, but yeah, I, 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 the the Retro Music, I, I, I used to go up there and hang out, rehearse in that place, and, and I used to go up and play shows at uh, uh, New Cheese, I think it was, the bar. There's this tiny little bar across from the college I used to play at. I played in a, a, in a restaurant there. Um, I had a rhythm section there for a while. I mean, I guess I still do. We haven't played together in a while, but uh, yeah, it's great. Mark Bond and, and Jeff Costello was great. Yeah. Uh, there was another one here from Michael, and I'm going to assume that's my friend Mickey, who's a fantastic young guitar player, mate. He's uh, he has autism. He's 15 years old, and you've never heard anyone play Dave Gilmore like like Mickey. It's it's great awesome. to see that he's into yeah. such cool music. And he's asking, what inspired you to play the guitar? Now, we did talk about your early days, and you said you started on drums, but why guitar? Yeah. What, what inspired you to, to pick up guitar afterwards? Uh, I think it was my mom, and someone else told me that uh, when I was really young, uh, whenever Elvis would come on, I would grab the broom and strum the broom. Uh, I don't really know beyond that. I mean, I have some early pictures with a toy guitar. Or, um, I was really young. I don't know. I really don't know. And my, it's not, and my grandmother played in instruments, but I didn't know that till much, much later. And uh, uh, other than that, I don't, there weren't anyone else in the family around me that, that played that I, that I knew of. So I really don't know, you know, it's just, know. just, just, just in you, huh? It's just in you. Yeah. <laughs> Steve White, the same way. His kids don't play. No one else in his family plays. Uh, just so a bizarre thing. So interesting. Yeah. Uh, if anybody has any more questions for Larry, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just going to quickly ask before anybody else does ask anything, just what gauge strings do you, do you use? Right? Uh, I use nines on Strat scale and yep. I use uh, t tens on Gibson scale. Uh -huh. After 50 years of playing, my hands are... Uh, uh, I don't. I don't need that much more resistance, you know. <laughs> I've done uh, the same thing. I've uh, dropped down. You know, I was always a, a ten to forty six or a ten to fifty two guy. But as you get older, the, the hands. Have you noticed a loss in tone? Because I haven't. No, not loss in tone. Um, no. If it, it, no, if anything, I I uh, just like in real life, you communicate differently. So um, I know it doesn't seem like, but I might play uh slower uh and whole notes longer than um than I did as a as a young kid uh as a younger kid um these days I you know probably hold notes a little longer and stuff because I communicate differently I also stop and talk differently as well yeah and how about picks what's your choice of pick um I use these dava picks can you see that yeah yeah yeah, I've seen those, I, yeah. um, I had a, a, a another hand issue uh, ten years ago, and my hands would shake, and I couldn't hold on to picks. Um, and then uh, I met Dave Story, who's from New Zealand, uh, and he invented the Kaler tremolo and licensed it to to Kaler. All right. Um, 
uh, he's an interesting dude. Very cool. Very interesting. He is a true. You ever meet an artist that you kind of go, oh, this is an artist. Yeah. Uh, he sees everything completely different. And um, so uh, I had I used to have these get-togethers once a month, kind of get-togethers in, when I lived in New Mexico. And um, I didn't know much about him, but I met him. I thought it was really cool. And the, the idea was everybody brings something that that you have that you think most people in the group haven't seen before or played or tried. It could be a pedal, amp, guitar, anything and dave brought in like two of the most bizarre like the early prototype killer and like why do you have that and then it's like oh yeah well i i yeah, we built the first killer wow. <laughs> but uh he makes these picks dava picks and it's neoprene uh like a uh, swimsuit material i guess on the yeah. outside yeah and uh in uh, nylon on the uh, for the pick part and i could hold those when i was at my worst i could hold on to this pick and um now my hands don't shake anymore, but um, yeah, I use these. I have some other ones with my logo on them because you can't put the logo on this. Sure. And uh, I could almost play with those now, um, just like a regular pick, but I will drop those before I drop these. You know? uh-huh. Yeah, it's amazing uh, the difference a pick makes. I know when I went to um, NAM a couple of years ago, I bumped into a, a chap named uh, Andy James, who was one of these Instagram yeah. shredder guys. Uh and I, I said to him, oh, man, your, your picking is one of the, the cleanest, most insane picking I've ever heard. And he, in his English accent, stuck his hand in his pocket and leaned over to me and said, I've got a secret and pulled out this, this pick and gave it to me. We had a, a signature pick coming out. And it mm-hmm. struck me just how thick it was and no flex at all. And up until that point, I was mm-hmm. using something that was a little bit flexible. And that put me on this path of looking at different picks. And I, now I use very chunky chicken picks which are these big things hmm. here yeah yeah uh, will that focus will that focus probably there it goes uh and there they don't chunk up and and the edges don't go all funny on me like a, a lot of the other ones that i've, I've tried uh, but the sound difference in trying mm-hmm. different picks i never realized how much of a difference everything makes, makes a difference yeah yeah, yeah. so everything playing, makes a difference Playing in the in the Queen tribute show, I was using coins like Brian May, and uh-huh. if you didn't do that, it didn't sound like Brian May. Each note that he plays has a little chirp, metal on metal, mm-hmm. chook, chook. Mm-hmm. and when you listen for it, there it is, clear as day. So cool. Well, yeah, I'm always yeah. asking people about their picks, and I have to try those ones. That you said, that Java? Did you say? Dava. Dava. D A V A. D A V A. Uh huh. I'm gonna go and try some of those. Larry, is there okay. any, any current projects that you're working on that you want to uh, let people know about? Uh, I did a, um, I participated in a Van Halen tribute album, Long Island Van Halen tribute album. And it's bands from Long Island, New York, where I used to hang out and play, um, all doing Van Halen songs. And, um, and it's for all the proceeds go to Lung Cancer Foundation. And uh, I did a version of... Uh, hear about it later but i did not do it like van halen does it i because oh. it didn't make any sense because uh, you know if you're live and you see a tribute band that's one thing it's like all right this is the experience yeah. but on the record i was like if i do it exactly like van halen then that for me, me as a fan and a listener i'd be like oh cool i love this song yeah let me put the van halen version on because <laughs> you want to hear the real. so i approached it um 
All I can say is I approached it as as how I thought the edge from U2 would approach it. Oh, really? Yeah. And then the whole production of the song is different. It's a, a little bit different, but it's cool. And there's a little bit of Ed's voice speaking in it, and um, it, it, it's cool. I, I, I like it. I and that was it. a recording project, you said, yeah? Yeah, it's a record called uh, the Long Island Van Halen Tribute. I wish I had it in front of me, but um, uh, if you li Van Halen Tribute Album uh, dot com probably or dot org okay dot com or you can search it on Facebook. I'm pretty sure it'll come up. I'm gonna have to look that one up. It sounds interesting. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Larry, thank you so much for your time, uh, mate. Yeah, sure. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, Lots yeah. I try and make it as easy as I can for everyone, mate. As I said, nothing, nothing planned. Just start off with a simple question, see where things take us. Okay. Uh, I, cool. I do want to let people know that um, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that I'd rounded up some sponsors. So make sure you guys subscribe and like because I'm going to announce in the next couple of episodes how I'm going to give away all this stuff. Uh, thanks to Summer Cable, Chicken Picks, and ET Guitars. So. Um, if anybody has any suggestions, I'm not the best marketing guy, so I'm, I'm all, all ears if you've got some suggestions on how to, to give this away. But um, I do know that you need to be subscribed to the channel, so please do that. And once again, thank you to Larry Mitchell. Where's, where's, where's my crowd? Crowd! Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to hit my magic button, which ends things, my end screen button right here. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys.